Welcome to an original series, the podcast celebrating our favorite TV shows behind the paywall. I am Patch, one of your co-hosts, and with me celebrating the world of long-form storytelling is my best friend, my feeling film co-host, Mr. Aaron White. Man, we got to see him this episode, Patrick. Yes, we I'm did. I'm so excited. I'm so ready. Dude, I want to start the conversation. If you're dropping in and we do this on Feel and Film, and you don't know where you are, like you've had vertigo or something, we're talking about The Last of Us Season 1, Episode 2, entitled Infected. Now, I want to talk a little bit about this word, infected. When these stories come around, we've had a lot of them in video game format and TV show format. You have the zombie apocalypse type thing. You have The Walking Dead. You've got, I think, uh, Zack Snyder's got his stuff. You've got all these stories that refer to these creatures these things as either zombies or the undead i believe Druckmann went on record and lots of fans kind of agreed that it's important not to call these zombies it's important to call these that have the cordyceps infected that's how they're called in the game by all the characters and that's how they're referred to in this episode and i thought that it was really fitting for Druckmann and amazing to title this infected because i think it's their way of saying this is really important we want to establish that this is different we're not just telling another zombie apocalypse and how does the world react story we're doing something different and i think even from the game standpoint establishing that early on that they're not called zombies they're not calling called undead they're not called anything but infected because that's what they are i thought that was a really interesting choice that they made yeah, I agree. I think it helps to set them apart for sure. I mean, we don't really have anything else, to my knowledge, that is zombies that are fungal based. It's always something bloodborne or some sort of biological toxin that seems yeah. to create these, you know, like Umbrella, <laughs> some <laughs> awful corporation. Yeah. But it's never just nature like running its course naturally and deciding, you know what? I'm done with the planet. So let's just wipe it out. <laughs> <laughs> it's <a> self-correcting, <laughs> that kind of thing. You know, I mean, that's a whole other conversation, yeah. but maybe. Yeah. yeah, I think it is very fitting. And the fact that it comes from a fungus, I think is is even more so because it's established in that first episode that there's a realistic chance that this could happen. I love the fringy science that's used here. This is one of the reasons you and I really loved the show Fringe is because there were ideas that were presented that were just slightly on the fringe of actual science. And obviously slowly it led into Weird Zone that I fully appreciated, by the way, as I know you did. But for a story like this in either format, having the fungus as the base, I think really does emphasize the fact that we're calling out not who they are, but what's happened to them. These are those who have been infected, not those who are zombies. And I think that even if it's not thought this way, I think it really brings about the sense that later in the episode, Ellie asks some important questions when she's talking to Joel when they're sitting down in uh, one of the buildings. We'll get there. That sort of leans into talking about humanity and 
what that looks like, how you define what a human is. And it, it really starts to plant the seeds of what the themes of the story are about, about humanity and, and, and that type of stuff. And I, and I like that it's a slow burn. This is why I like the fact that The Last of Us is a TV series and not a movie. And why I like long-form storytelling in particular, because you have a chance to let these stories breathe a little bit. So kudos, love the title. And it made me, when I saw the title, I was like, I'm excited to watch this. And I was excited to watch it for the, uh, for the podcast too. Yeah, it gets you ready. I mean, they knew going in that this is what we wanted to see. Mm-hmm. And they were smart enough to withhold it somewhat from us really in that first episode. Right. And not even give it to us right away in the second episode either. Yeah. There's, yeah. You know, it's a, it works. It works really well. It does. As with the last episode, the cold open takes us back into the past from where the story actually is. We're in Jakarta in 2003 and we see some police take a woman named Ibu Ratna, who is a professor of mycology. I didn't know that was a thing. Maybe it's not, maybe just made up for the show, but she hails from the university of Indonesia and they've taken her to some kind of police facility uh, to have her look at a specimen. This is where we get the first instance of the cordyceps that's been infecting the world and it also provides an opportunity for us to basically get the reasons why the world as we know it looks the way it does she sees the virus that apparently isn't supposed to survive in humans wrong there Uh, she starts to examine this naked body they put her in this room and i i kid you not as someone who's not a big fan of jump scares i'm like okay let me get my pillow right in front of me And I haven't seen this since it debuted, so I didn't know if I got scared. And so my pillow came right back up this time. And I was like, what's going to happen? And they bring her in there. She's uh, investigating that naked body. And she realized that this person was bitten by a human. She kind of steps back, starts examining the mouth, and sees the fungus coming out. Oh, my gosh. I went into... It was... oh. It was amazingly gross. <laughs> yeah. So I wrote down, so, so gross and scary. And I assumed it was going to attack her. Yes. That was my first thought yeah. was no. And he, like you said, even having watched it before, for some reason, I didn't really remember. I didn't remember her dying, but I couldn't remember. She got like, if it was, you just naturally believe this thing because of every movie you've ever seen that it's going to jump off that table yes. and come at her. And so I was very tense watching it and yeah what a incredible design choice for the way the cordyceps works it's just oh, oh makes you want to puke i know it's coming it's out, coming out the throat and like you're oh. like oh, oh. like exactly <laughs> you start feeling it in your own yeah, throat like is ah. it back there is that gross no i don't want that <laughs> i want to throw a little bit of love to uh, background artists in this case the extra that's on the table like can you imagine being an extra in this scene, like having her like open your mouth and not laughing and not choking? It's just so, and also being naked. I mean, it's just, wow, pay that man his money. As I mean, it is, I, I would not do it. I couldn't. I, I just, I would. Thankless job. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you go extra that didn't have any lines um, <laughs> and way to hold it together while she was digging in your, in your mouth. So then uh, there's a debrief after this, and she gets the lowdown on what's up. Uh, People are being infected uh, through wheat and biting other humans. There are missing workers who are infected, and they're like, hey, 
what should we do, Doc? And she's like, this is the cordyceps virus. You can't do anything except bomb everything. There's no vaccine. There's no medicine. This thing is out of control. And it's the only way, you know, bomb the city, get everybody that's not infected out and then just go to town that way. And it just leaves us, that scene leaves us going, wow, the fact that there's no solution apart from that, it's basically almost total annihilation. It starts making you ask the question, what is considered the good life at that point? Could you survive and thrive in a bombed city, but not be infected? Or would you rather just live until you were eventually infected or attacked by another one of the infected? And it kind of left me kind of asking that question. Yeah. So first of all, I've been holding this in since we recorded our first episode out of respect for the audience in case you guys listening had not watched the whole series yet. But one of my favorite details in this show is in the first episode, Joel slash his daughter Sarah are saved from becoming infected at least four times. And you don't know it until now because we learn that it's in the wheat supply. That is how it's going to get out. That is how it's going to infect the world. In episode one, they don't get Joel's pancakes for his birthday. That's dodge number one. Then he refuses to eat the biscuits, the nasty biscuits on the neighbors that they're stuffing in the, the old woman's mouth. That's dodge number two. Then Sarah doesn't get him a birthday cake, dodge number three. And then he doesn't eat the cookies that she brings home from the nasty neighbors either. So that's like four potential gluten-based killer mechanisms in the house or or that could have been in the house for his birthday that he he and she are able to not take in and i just think it's so rewarding and rich enriching on a rewatch patrick because you know this at that point and you're like because oh. when he's like oh, i wanted pancakes and you're like no you didn't joel you didn't it's okay i swear yes. you just want to shake him and be like you're so lucky you don't understand Man, I love that you brought that up. Way to sleuth it out. And you're right. I think that speaks to the integrity of the show, of the story, not only to put little Easter eggs in there, but to make them purposeful. I think we've talked about that when you have callbacks or when you do things that give the fans a little bit of a nod. When it's purposeful, I think it adds so much more uh, value to the story. So in this case, the lesson is bomb the city or go gluten-free, apparently. That's kind of the way you survive the infected cordyceps apocalypse that's happening. So listeners, if that ever happens, you know this is the plan. Stay away from gluten and then bomb your local city and you're good. I lived almost entirely keto for like three plus years, so I feel like I could probably survive. It wouldn't be enjoyable, but it would be better than obviously becoming infected. But I think that this is such an awesome, <laughs> that's probably a wrong word to choose, but it's a interesting ethical dilemma to be presenting so early in this show, which is going to be full of them and is going to ultimately lead to a massive climactic sort of ethical dilemma. And Right here in the very beginning, we have one. Do you try and stop it? And the thing that I found really nice about how they handled this was our doctor character, the expert, the scientist, whatever she is, she knows that it is going to cost not only all of these people their lives, but it includes her and her family. So when she says this is what we need to do, she is willing 
to go down with the ship, Patrick. She is willing to sacrifice the life of herself and her loved ones because that is what she believes is the only way for the human race to proceed. And that gives it a lot of power behind what she is suggesting. It's not just some casual thing thrown out there to kind of try and create stakes. No, there really are stakes. And to me, that sold it well. Yeah, absolutely agree with that. Cosine completely. So after the cold open, we are in present day 2023 at an abandoned house, I think is what it is. And this is, um, you know, Ellie's waking up to Joel and Tess looking creepily at her. What a great kind of camera shot where she's like, oh, what? it's you know, it's been a long night. And she looks up and you've got these two adults like, you're going to give us some answers, girl. That's pretty much kind of what they were looking at. And uh, also pointing a gun at her. Guns become very apparent in this episode, whether she has one or not. And um, they're really skeptical about her infection, which I would be too. I mean, the last thing we saw was she's infected and they're taking her somewhere. I absolutely love the sarcasm here. The game, the relationship between Joel and Ellie starts out this way. It's one where they're very apprehensive and just kind of just butting heads. And I thought this was going to be a make or break relationship for the show. Could these two actors really come together and be not just sarcastic to each other, but let that sarcasm become entertaining? Because it's one thing to be sarcastic to each other, but that sarcasm could lead to a lot of just like, okay, this is annoying. Uh, Can you just stop talking? And I think that's the magic of the game is that this relationship between the two of them starts out so tumultuous, but it leads into obviously a better relationship. I like how it was set up here. It was not too much. It was a laugh here and there, but it was definitely fitting for the relationships that we're familiar with in the game. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the sarcasm that is displayed by Ellie is just so on point, just in particular. I mean, I love Pedro as Joel as well, but the way that she can just this dialogue it just i started sending you quotes when i was doing my rewatch because it's just too too good like it feels like every line is so sassy it's yeah oh so, you know like all they ask they ask simple questions they're like what did they what did they do to you or what you know why did they keep you and she's like she locked me up and had her guys test me every day to see if i was getting sick test you how i have to pee test you how They'd make me count to 10 and hold out my hand and then keep it steady. But, you know, I think what really impressed them was the fact that I didn't turn into a fucking monster. And then just right after that, they're like talking again and Tess is trying to, I don't know, be all brooding somehow. She's like, Joel and I aren't good people. We're doing this for us. And Ellie is not really buying it fully, I don't think. And they are set, they start to set off. And like you mentioned already, there's all these instances in this episode of her trying to get a gun, which will be a recurring theme. Can I have a gun? Absolutely no. not. Okay, Jesus, fine. I'll just throw a fucking sandwich at them. And it's just <laughs> like, you know, she has a good point. Yeah. Like, is that really going to do anything? And and I, I love it because it, fe- it feels very natural to me. Yeah. There is highly written banter that makes you laugh, but doesn't, truly sound like something you might hear or you might say if you were walking and talking with people. But this to me, it just feels like it's the way that pretty much anybody who's sarcastic would talk in a really uncomfortable, intense situation like this. 
Yeah. And I think for us as an audience, it establishes her as being very independent of not necessarily needing anyone. Like we get those hints of like, I'm my own person. I can handle myself. Give me a gun. Okay, fine. I'll go along with this. All that stuff sort of allows us to see the kind of person that she is where she's not just being a brat. It's not a brat kind of feeling that I'm getting. It's really of like, Hey, look, I only know what I've been told. I only know where I'm supposed to go based off of what Marlene's saying. And that's still not much. So they're all three just in this place where they don't know each other. I mean, Joel and Tess know each other, but they don't know her. She doesn't know them. And they're really just trying to make the hard choices. Like we're going to reluctantly trust each other because we have to survive. So they set the rules in place. Uh, it's at this point that she's telling them that she's like the key to the fireflies flying firefly fire. Gosh, that's so tongue in tongue in my mouth. <laughs> I've got like cordyceps in my mouth. That's what's happening. It's like a key. She's the key to the fireflies finding a cure. There you go. Bonus points there. Joel's not buying it. In fact, I think he goes, Oh yeah, I've heard this before. Yeah. We finally found something. No, that's not it. Pessimistic. Joel been through a lot. I'm with you, dude. I would probably not trust her either. But Tess is like, we got to do this. I mean, what do we have to lose? And he's like, basically our lives. But Tess comes through, convinces him. He reluctantly says, okay. And then they step out of that hallway or that room. And what a great glimpse of the city in the daylight. And it's picture perfect. It's the video game. Like as we're walking through the fallen city, we see the buildings that have essentially like leaned over on each other and the ruins. And I love how Ellie describes it. It's like being on the moon, but it's like destroyed, like a crappy moon, like a (laughs) destroyed moon. There's no beauty to it. It's all chaos. But again, the composition is just so great because it really describes the enormity of what had to happen in order for the virus to be contained. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and she does this again later, too. She says something very similar about that at the end of the episode where she seems to acknowledge the potential beauty that still exists in the world, even amongst her own sort of cynicism. It's almost like her cynicism is more of an armor that we feel like than Joel's. Joel's feels pretty staunch and understandable because of what we know what he went through. We aren't privy to what Ellie has been through yet, but Ellie's to me always feels more like a, like a kid, like the kid that she is right where it's like, she's trying to put on this, hardened exterior and this tough face to like deal with this awful world. But deep down she sees a pretty skyline that she doesn't usually get to see and she can't help, but you know, remark on that. Yeah. Um, It's an honest reaction. Yeah. It's an honest reaction Mm -hmm. to it. You know, part of the game's mechanics is a lot of walking, not walking, Mm -hmm. but just walking Walking and combat. And, We get some of that here, but it serves as backstory about the fact that the bomb had to be done, like that they had to bomb the cities to slow the spread. They end up, because of the way that the city is laid out, they have to take the long way to the state house, which goes through, I think it's a hotel, but we also get a couple of hints at future (laughs) stuff that happens in the game, referring to a mall and about being alone in that mall. And it just made me happy. I love those little hints, like you said, with the with the wheat. And it's just like, 
all right, there is an acknowledgement here of potentially future stuff, but at the very least, acknowledgements about some stuff that happens in the game. Yeah, it's everywhere, man. That's what I just love about it. It feels like it's constant. There even just what seems like throwaway dialogue during that travel banter when they're walking and Tess says something to Ellie. She's she's you now trying to get to know her or something. And she's like, she asks her something about whether she has parents or a boyfriend that are going to come after her. And they're, they're like, do we need to be worried about you having parents or boyfriend that are going to track you down and come after us? And Ellie's like, well, I'm an orphan and nope. And I'm just going to leave it there because if you know what that means, that reaction to that specific part of the question is like, oh, well, that's why she said it that way. Yeah. But you don't, you know, you don't really catch that in the moment. Yeah. And then she gets also like a fun little line for gamers <laughs> in this one, which you and I both really love. They're talking about stories that they've heard about the infected. Everyone said the open city was crazy. Like swarms of infected running around everywhere. Not exactly like that. You know, people like to tell stories. So there aren't super infected that explode fungus spores on you? Shit, I hope not. Or ones with split open heads that stay in the dark like bats? <laughs> Joel, I think it's Joel. It might be Tess. One of them, I think it's Tess, actually. Or is it Joel or Tess? Tess, I can't remember. Tess looks at Joel and just gives them, them says, a look. Like, uh... Oh, yeah, Joel says, well, I sure hope not. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, those are the game infected versus what we're going to see in the show. Yeah. It's just cute little nod to have that thrown in there. Yeah, for sure. So after that, we're in the hotel. Ellie's ability to find fun in all of this is absolutely fantastic. The moment where she sees the water and she's like, uh, how are we going to get through that? And Joel's like, like basically like this. And he just steps in and Ellie goes up to his knees because <laughs> we find out that she can't swim, which is very much an Ellie character trait from the game. And it serves, um, later on in the game, in the game's history as, as a, as a, not really a plot point, but as something that we sort of celebrate, uh, later on, um, her ability or inability to swim but she is she I think she sees a piano and she starts playing it before she gets freaked out at some like dead infected person. <laughs> but I, I love her levity here. And I think it speaks to what you talked about earlier, which is she's a kid and she is absolutely an explorer at this point. She's never been outside the city walls. I don't think she's trying to be optimistic. I, I think she's just trying to be curious. This is who she is. She can't apologize for being anything else. So I think that all of this stuff is great establishment for her character. And it gets us understanding that she can see some of the better parts of this as more adventurous, not necessarily as beautiful, but as adventurous. So the whole sequence, it's like one of those challenges that the team has to overcome as far as like making exploration along the journey interesting to watch. And I mean that as the creative team. So actually, I, I, I looked at the time. From the moment that they left to go into the city after that first scene, it's almost like, I think, seven or eight minutes of them just walking around and traversing. And this is the game. And this is the mm -hmm. difficulty. Like, how do we get them from point A to point B and make it interesting? And this felt very purposeful. Having good dialogue, creating moments of like lightheartedness, seeing Tess's reaction to certain things, seeing Joel's reaction to certain things. It also serves as an opportunity for more interaction between 
Joel and Ellie because they're the anchor of the show. And that's what I know the creators had to say. We've got to get them connected some. So let's make this an opportunity to do that. And I thought it was really, really effective. Yeah, I agree. I was just super stoked to get to see the hotel in there because we skipped over the sewers completely, Mm -hmm. which was somewhat of a bummer. But when they made the change in how infected work with spores and such, the sewer would have been just an unnecessary tangent to put them in harm's way against infected Um, or as we're going to talk about again later, more Fedra soldiers. And so I totally understood why it was skipped, but it was nice to get to see them design game locations that looked almost identical to the way they they were in the game. And so like the flooded hotel lobby with the sunken piano and being able to push the bell, like as a player, you can go over and push the bell and the player and the characters will react to you doing that, which is really cool. And then Ellie making a note about, well, I'm not able to swim, which is a big deal in the game. And it causes you extra puzzles to solve when you need to get from point A to point B and she can't get across water. So I really enjoyed all that. And then of course, like that quiet conversation that she gets to have with Joel where they actually do share some positive or some personal details about each other, um, specifically like him killing in the past Mm -hmm. and such. Yeah. And that was a very, very beautiful quiet moment in this one. It's probably one of my favorite scenes, probably top three, uh, maybe, maybe two or three in this particular episode. And I think it's because, again, it starts out with a little sarcasm. She's referring to Tess. Tess has got gone to find a, a way through. And so they're sitting there all quiet-like, and she goes, So, uh, you two, like, uh... Pass. How'd you end up in Boston? Pass. No more questions about me. But then she starts asking him if he's ever killed someone or has, if, if he's ever killed, I guess, infected. And he goes, yeah. She asked the question, what about that guy last night? Like, I know you've killed infected and it apparently doesn't bother you. What about that guy last night? It doesn't get answered. And I think it, it's bothering him, obviously. But it brings to light this really questionable, like, who do you consider good? What is, when do you kill and when do you not? Are the infected really people after they've turned, essentially? And so I think those questions start getting asked through this conversation between the two. And, of course, that's interrupted by by Tess, who leads them to the roof. I think of the entirety of the episode, this is probably my favorite composition, my favorite shot, when they look over the roof and they see all of those infected, real people like stunt people, like I love the background artist in this show. It's fantastic. And this is where we get what I think is probably one of the coolest changes from the game to the show is this explanation about how the fungus isn't just infecting people. It's also able to connect. The fungus also grows underground. Long fibers like wires, some of them stretching over a mile. You step on a patch of cordyceps in one place and you can wake a dozen infected from somewhere else how do you not get the infected bat signal to not happen in this case and it was really really cool to see that okay i can see how the fungus isn't just easier to film and easier to explain but now you have a like a sub product that comes from this that makes it even scarier than the spores in the game yeah this was one of the wild new changes for how the cordyceps worked and how the fungal 
network was devised to be that underground connected situation. It's fascinating. It's just really, really interesting. I think it is perfect for the show. Like we talked about last week, it's not a show where you can walk around in a gas mask all the time. That doesn't translate to this entertainment medium very well. People being afraid of where they step does. Uh, and I and I like that a lot. Yeah. The biggest thing in this scene is it gave Ellie mortality because we would assume, oh, she can't die from the infection. But Tess says something really great after she explains the whole thing about the interconnectedness. She goes, now they know where you are. Now they come. You're not immune from being ripped apart. You understand? It's important. I'm trying to keep you alive. I mean, it's so poignant because Tess is basically saying you're not immune to death. You might be immune to this virus or this this fungus, but you're not immune to having your limbs ripped apart or your head bitten off. I think it sobers Ellie up where she starts to realize, okay, there's a level of seriousness that maybe I wasn't acknowledging. And between her and Tess, I think they both realize this is important. Like this means something as Richard Dreyfuss would say in Close Encounters. Like it's a, it's a big deal. And I like that sobering moment because it provides this, this moment where they're not just dragging this kid along who has a magic potion inside of her. No, they're protecting her. They have to protect her, not just from the fungus that doesn't affect her, but from the people that are infected that will. Well, after seeing that they can't go that way for obvious reasons, the short way is the next option. And that's the museum. Aaron, I got so excited when I found out they were going to the museum because I knew what was coming. And I wrote, heck yes, we're heading to the museum. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Will we finally start to get C's clickers? Yeah. That's what I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> and sure enough, we do. Before they go in, Joel checks the fungus outside. It's bone dry. Apparently that could be a good sign. Ellie keeps hinting at wanting a gun. <laughs> I have a spare hand. Congratulations. <laughs> he said congratulations. I was dying. Oh, so funny. It is so fantastic. Like, you're not getting a gun. <laughs> Keep trying, though. Keep trying. So they go inside the museum. They lurk around and see what Joel calls cooked infected. Ellie then finds a guy who was attacked by something like this guy was fresh. He looked like maybe a month old and not necessarily infected, but just ripped apart. Like, okay, this is something different. Joel and Tess's reaction to each other was absolutely phenomenal because they knew what this was. We didn't know. Well, we as an audience who have never played the game didn't know what, what's this about? And then Joel's like, from this way forward, we're silent, not quiet silent and i'm like here we go oh my gosh i want to throw some love to the production design because yes we've seen mm -hmm. these composites of the city i'm pretty sure that cg <laughs> i wouldn't think that they would create giant cities with broken buildings and stuff but you do not cg the inside of the museum everything from the dead fungus to the steps that break all this stuff is one, so close to the original game design, but two, it serves as just 
a story in and of itself of like the dilapidation of the building and how the infected may have gotten in. And it just creates a level of history. Like ironically, it's a museum. So yes, it's going to have history in it, but now we've got post-apocalyptic history. And it's so cool to see all the details that go into everywhere that they go. Like they go through at least four or five rooms that we see. Obviously there are more than that, but that takes a lot of effort to put all that together, to make stuff look dirty and old and worn, and then to create this tension in there with what we see next. It's just amazing. So great job. Kudos to them. Yeah. And I'm also really glad that they got the original actors who did the clicker voices to come back and voice voice the clickers, I guess. They, they are voicing them because it sounds just like the ones in the game. There is no difference. It is equally as terrifying the production design, the practical design of the clickers is insane when their translation from game to show is practically perfect. Yeah. And of course, maybe even more terrifying in some ways when you see them coming up on people. Uh, and I just thought that that whole sequence in here, not only is it awesome because of how similar it is to the game, which is always a joy for someone who played it to get to go through something like that. But it is just super suspenseful. It plays out just as terrifying as it should for people who are interacting with these things for the first time in this way. And I thought it was a great touch that Mr. Not Quiet But Silent is the one to make the stinking noise yeah. that brings the stinking click <laughs> Joel. So good job, bud. Yeah. Good job for breaking your own rules. <laughs> right. I was like, get your melee weapon out, Joel. That's the only way you're going to kill him. <laughs> yeah, you, you only avoided a massive flurry of sarcastic remarks from Ellie because you were about to die. Right. Otherwise, you were going to get it. Yeah. And I think one of the things I like about the introduction of these clickers is we get the sound first because that's the icon. That's the thing. Yes, the way they look is phenomenal. Help me if you know, I know that the voice cast for the clickers was the same in the game. The mocap for the for the game are, are they the same? Do you know if they're the same people that did the like? Are the actors not the voice actors, but the actors and the voice actors are they the same? Do you know? Yes. Oh, they are. Okay. I just looked it up. I was like trying to answer very slowly. It says yes, <laughs> okay. they were played by the same actors. Correct. It's so so good the way that they move, not just the sounds, but the way that they move and like kind of you know kick their head back and forth. It's so good. I love the shot behind or through the like the dirty glass of the display case it's how it's lit it's like a shadow and then how the clicker comes around and you can see like the face the split face that ellie describes from earlier it's great but the other thing i love is that they are not easy to kill like this is a game mechanic that is absolutely frustrating if you're just starting out that they can only be killed easily with the melee weapon so if you have a bat you have to have a bat with like a shiv on it in order to kill them quickly otherwise you're blowing through like shotgun 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 like bullet after bullet and they're not dying that is completely accurate here and so the tension that you feel is not something that's that far-fetched so knowing that these come later in the game and there are tons of them. There's a great sequence. I, th I think it's in the sewer. No, it's in the bus station or the subway station. That scared the mess out of me because there are so many clickers that you have to, you don't want to interact with. So I like that 
that component was still here in in this element and that there weren't like five or six of them because you didn't need that you you only needed a couple to really establish their presence and their strength and their ability to to hang over dear life until joel just like you know whatever well that's another ongoing thing that we'll see throughout the show really is that the lack of overwhelming numbers of infected against our human characters because you break the realism and in a video game you're not worried about that because you have an arsenal of a shotgun and a long rifle and two different types of pistols and your axe and your bow and arrow and your Molotov cocktails and your nail bombs and you can just take out a ton of them and that's what gameplay is it's fun so you need multiple clickers to kill or to get around in real life one of these things is plenty of a deadly challenge, and I think they do it really perfectly. Yeah. Um, it wouldn't make sense. It just wouldn't feel right if there were five. You would be like, there's no way these people are getting through them. Yeah. And then they would feel like superheroes instead of humans. Right. I think that there's a um, a great moment after this. They finally get to the roof, and they take a breath. Can I just say, I got way too giddy about them walking over a big wooden plank. <laughs> Just so <laughs> like me with the ladder I was mad like that they the didn't go pick it up first yeah. because that's what you have to do over and over in the game. But the fact that they actually walked over this wooden plank to get from rooftop to rooftop, which is another mechanic you yep. use all the time. I was just like, yes, that's exactly what they do in this. Spot. Yeah. So at this point, I want to go back to the first episode and um, and make good on what I was going to tell you in the last episode that each episode, I'll tell you the moment that I would not survive in each episode. So the first one is in okay. episode one from episode one. And it's the moment during the prologue sequence where that dude who's infected, like stands up really <laughs> quickly and starts chasing Joel. Yeah. My daughter's running. I'm not. Cause I can't run that fast. He's going to just bow me down and kill me. And then <laughs> no life for me. So hopefully she survived. <laughs> hopefully Sarah survived without her dad because I would have gotten taken down. I would have completely freaked out seeing a clicker and I would have yelled and I would have been killed instantly. That's in this episode. I would have been like, Ooh, and that clicker would have just completely eaten me. So in this episode, it would have been during the clicker sequence that I would have died. So <laughs> there it is. I think you and pretty much everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. I'm <laughs> not saying I'm in, most of us yeah. would not have. Survived I'm not saying that it, that's <laughs> only on me, but I'm saying that, you know, if I'm being captain obvious, that's the moment in this episode where, I would not be able to survive other places. Potentially. Yes. Because I've got sacrificial people like Tess doing stuff that I would, you know, anyway, we'll get there. So yeah, they get to the roof and there's the plank, which I was the same way. I was like, yes, this is great before they go over there. Well, Ellie goes over. Tess seems a little bit pissy after Joel bandages her up. She, I think is like, Joel, try to find some optimism here. And I'm like, yeah, Joel, not realizing what she was kind of foreshadowing a little bit, but she's really trying to get his mindset right of like, you've got to get in the right headspace because it's about to just be you and her. So from there, they get to the Capitol where they're supposed to meet the fireflies and great shot of the Capitol with the golden dome. Yes. Awesome. And I know that's real. That that's Boston. So, uh, but still very cool. And then they realize that nobody's there. So Joel checks the abandoned truck, doesn't get any info, but Ellie sees blood on the steps. And they're like, maybe they went inside. And Joel's like, no, let's not go inside because that's not good. When they walk out 
I, this is where Ellie makes that other comment. And I think it's Joel that says to her as they're walking across that plank on the roof, he says, is it everything you'd hoped for? And she says, jury's still out, but man, you can't deny that view. Oh yeah. And I just, that's maybe my favorite line of dialogue in this entire episode, yeah. because there's just a, a brief moment where I was saying she, they just came through the clicker episode and she sees this just demolished world, but that, that dome. Yeah. And she recognizes the potential beauty that is still left in the world. And I think it's a very important moment that defines Joel seeing her react to something that way that makes him view her in a way that is slightly starting to change. Yeah. That's a beyond just cargo. Th- that's a great point. That's a great point. And and I did in my notes point out that that shot is incredibly beautiful and incredibly accurate from the game. Like the golden dome is very much a symbol of of hope for for them until they get there and realize that the fireflies are all dead. The show, much like the game, doesn't leave you, you know, feeling good for very long, and I think that's the point of it <laughs> in in a lot of ways. So, when they get there, they see the dead fireflies inside the Capitol. They go in. Tess looks for a map. She starts yelling at Joel. She says, "I'm staying." Then Ellie's like, wait a minute, you're infected. What I didn't expect, Aaron, was the change to this sequence. So I knew, just like you and any game uh, player, that she was going to die. What I didn't realize is how. So you pointed this out to me after I watched the episode the first time, that in the game, which I knew, Fedra kills her. So there's a, a swarm of Fedra soldiers that whole sequence plays out in the same kind of way in that she sacrifices herself for Joel and Ellie to get to escape. This, I think reemphasizes and brings that point home about the ability of the infected to be interconnected. And it's the swarm of infected that come in and eventually swarm her and get to her just as she's able to, you know, (laughs) blow the capital up with all the, uh, the firepower that she's laid down. Yeah, it was strange to me to be in the capital without that Fedra encounter because it's such a long set piece in the game. And to you know watch Tessa's death kind of get changed up a little bit because of that. But again, it doesn't make sense in the games. Fedra is this ever-present force from the very beginning where there's soldiers that are chasing you, and that's just not the world of the show. Like, we've heard Fedra mentioned as somewhere that Ellie was once upon a time present at or interacted with but that's really what we know at this point so far in the show and because it's not about soldiers hunting humans down so they needed to mess it mess around with it and change it up a bit and i think it worked really well and it gives us another one of those horror moments that we get with that disgusting kiss and just i mean it is like we were gagging the first time in this episode when it was just seeing it come out of the thing's throat, Mm -hmm. but now to like see it come out of the thing's throat (laughs) and go into her throat. It was just, it was the most gnarly, disgusting, but well done kind of thing. I was glad that Joel didn't get to see this one in the video game. He has to watch as she gets mowed down this time. I mean, his back is turned as the whole building explodes. And so, I mean, obviously it's not yay, but it's also not, it could have been a worse if you were watching that happen. That would have been worse than watching her get shot because it's 
it's just more terrifying yeah. to see it that way. And, and I think it's just beautiful. I think it's very similar to how the game is done. I personally still will always prefer all of the game characters to all the show characters, but I think they did a great job, especially what Anna Torv does in this moment when she makes that proclamation to Joel of, or when she, she demands of him that he will promise her to get this done. And because seemingly it's as a penance in a way for her, she says like all the ish that we did, like she's acknowledging that they have, as she told Ellie, not been good people. And she essentially feels to me like in this moment, it's almost like you're going to your deathbed and you're confessing your sins and you're, you know, you're, you're trying to come clean because you realize you are at the end and you want to go out by doing a good act. And it's, it's really touching. It is. She has that great set of lines that you alluded to. She says, this is your chance. You get her there. You keep her alive. And you set everything right. She also says to get her to Bill and Frank's. And then the last shot of the episode after the explosion is just the single shot of Ellie looking out, presumably at Joel, but her face is like, okay, this just got real. I think this is the first time that someone that she saw cared about her and cared about the mission and about her has died. And so I think all of this stuff in this episode has allowed us to see Ellie grow up just a little bit. She is still the same person, still sarcastic, still young, still curious, but there has been a significant growth from the beginning of the episode to the end, because just like us, she's realizing that the good guys don't always live. And I think this is something really interesting about the story and what the show has shown us so far is that episode one, somebody close to us dies. Episode two, somebody close to us dies. So I'm like, okay, well, who's going to die in the next episode? Who's going to die? Is this just like pick them off every episode? We got nine episodes. So at least nine people are going to die that we care about. (laughs) And it's very... Let's start keeping track because I wouldn't be surprised if that happened. Uh, It's worth worth checking. It's worth keeping track of. So what it does is it just reminds us that this is a story that's going to have consequences. It's a story that's going to have sacrifice and loss and the creators just like in the game want us to feel that loss as we're on this journey with joel and ellie so it's starting to become effective love anna torv was sad to see her go knew it was going to happen but still sad just like i knew sarah was going to die and now we've got two people that we've sort of been invested with now not part of our our world anymore any final thoughts before we wrap it up No, not really. I don't think so. Uh, I just really thought that this was another fantastic episode. And just as I watched this through the very first time, I came away with the same feeling of these first two are pretty much like pitch perfect for me as far as adapting the material and getting us to the point that we're out in the open and truly leaving Boston behind on the journey. Yeah. Um, which is going to be a whole other set of challenges and characters to meet along the way and stuff. Um, And I just didn't know how we were going to handle it, you know, with only two episodes. And I think they managed really well. Agreed. Yeah. I think getting us out past Boston helped open the story. Metaphorically speaking, it gave us the chance to breathe a little bit because there is definitely a slower burn in the game that gets us from the capital to the next phase of this 
All right. Well, that's going to wrap up this episode of an original series. The next episode that we have coming up is episode three entitled Long, Long Time. So be sure to tune in for that. Aaron, thank you for this great conversation. I'm so excited that you're on this journey with me to discuss this show. I know it's not like I'm, you know, trying to like drag you along. You were more than willing to do this. So willing participant. Yeah, willing participant, right? So we'll keep chatting. And uh, in the meantime, keep watching and keep listening. I'm Patch. He's Aaron. And we are out of here.